Welcome back to the Ridley Institute podcast. I'm uh, Sam Forniker, your host. And uh, buckle up, my friends, because I have uh, a slight feeling that this conversation is going to feel like someone stuck a leaf blower right in your face. And um, well, you, you get the idea. My uh, my guest today is D.C. Schindler. Uh, Dr. Schindler, um, David, if, if I may, uh, is professor of metaphysics and anthropology at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family, the Catholic University of America. He has published widely. His books include The Catholicity of Reason, published in 2013, Freedom from Reality, The Diabolical Character of Modern Liberty in 2017. He's edited and translated the magnum opus of, of the great 20th century philosopher Ferdinand Ulrich, uh, Homo Abyssus. And he's just published a remarkable book entitled Retrieving Freedom, The Christian Appropriation of Classical Tradition, published last month with Notre Dame. In short, for listeners who might be new to conversations such as this one, Dr. Schindler is a guy who just crushes it. So Dr. Schindler, uh, David, if I may, a very warm welcome. Absolutely thrilled to have you on the uh, on the podcast. Thank you, Sam. It's, it's really a, a, a privilege to be here. Well, I, I, I think before we uh, begin, it would be, um, I, I suppose I'd just like to say that I'm very sorry to hear about the recent passing of your father, D.L. Schindler, um, who's made a great impact on many Christian leaders uh, in the church and in the uh, academy. So I'm very, very sorry for your loss. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, thank you. I, um, uh, we had scheduled this um, a while back, uh, of course, not knowing that, that my father would pass away. It was quite a surprise. But um, I, I'm, I'm actually very happy to be able to talk about this book um, here the, the day before his viewing um, and then the funeral on Friday. I, uh, I dedicated this book to him, and um, uh, I had been waiting for the the, the, the right book uh, to dedicate to my father, who's always been, I think, the the most profound influence on my on my thinking. Um, uh, and I chose this book in part because of the um, the significance of the theme of freedom, which was always very important to him. Um, and I have uh, some of the most decisive conversations um, that are sort of the seed roots of this project. I go back to high school days, uh, uh, talking about some things with my with my father, and then and then also this theme of of the the uh, idea that one recovers a, the best sense of freedom by a, a profound reception of the tradition and inheritance. And, uh, there, you know, the the father handing on to the son. Um, that seemed uh, it just seemed appropriate that this this book would be dedicated to my my father. So, I'd like to maybe have this conversation um, in his honor. That is uh, you you've mind blowing um, connection. I think I just appreciated what you're doing in the conclusion of the book a great wow. deal more. Uh, yeah. Wow, that's really beautiful. Um, well, I'm I'm so so glad that we have this conversation, and I um it really is my hope that it, that it will um oh I, I that that it will that it will be a great um way to honor the the legacy of your of your father. Um, Thank you. Well, this okay. So this is a dense book, <laughs> uh, lots of names and themes that are going to be new. Um, I, I suppose to many listeners. So let's uh, maybe we can just first erect some kind of basic architecture. Um, this is uh, volume two of a larger project. So maybe can you can you give us a sense of the larger project into which this fits? And maybe can I ask for an elevator speech kind of mm -hmm. on what happened in the previous volume, Freedom from Reality? Sure. Thank you. Yeah, this I, I'll, I'll try not to go on too long. I could go on very long, of course, on this. But uh, in, in a nutshell, um, uh, I had for for since in a way since high school, always had a sense that uh, the question of freedom was was at the root of so many other issues. Um, the it's a it's a it's a value that seems to be held universally, but interpreted in somewhat different ways. A lot of battles um, um, happen over the uh, concept of freedom or the implications of freedom. And I was always, on the one hand, convinced of its importance and centrality, but then secondly, um, always 
profoundly dissatisfied by the terms in which the the, the different debates were held and uh, made up my mind one day to really try to get to the heart of what I thought the problem was. So that's what this project is. And, and, and you know, initially it was going to be one volume and um, it expanded uh, to, to a three-volume project. The, the first one, um, Freedom from Reality, the, the idea there was to try to go to the ontological roots of what I took to be the problem in the modern concept of freedom. And uh, I, I developed these um, this... Um, polarity or, or or dialectic i suppose not not really a dialectic a polarity is a better term uh of uh, the symbolic and the diabolical which are etymological opposites and um present i i, I presented the, the the classical christian tradition as a symbolic tradition a symbolic sense of freedom uh the the root word is um joining together um uh, bringing together uh, symbolane and the, the diabolical, as I said, is the etymological opposite. It's casting asunder, setting apart. And it occurred to me uh, that th that's a that's a um, a couplet that I drew from Ferdinand Ulrich, actually. Uh, and it occurred to me that that was just a helpful way to to think about uh, so many of the basic institutions, values, concepts in, in modern society as diabolical in the sense of uh, casting apart, separate, making separations, divisions, and so forth. And, and, and I discovered that the, um, so many of the things that we associate with freedom have to do precisely with this divide, division, uh, uh, separating our, uh, the, the human soul from, from reality. And and that that sets in motion a whole series of of dialectics and paradoxes that um, that I think go a long way in explaining the current our current situation. So um, in the book, I, I took uh, John Locke as kind of setting up the paradigm of this view, um, this this um, diabolical, uh, if you will, view of, of freedom, and then ended the book looking at. Um, uh, Plato and Aristotle as, um, big, you know, turning to then the, the, the pre-modern symbolic sense and, uh, opening that up with, uh, with Plato and Aristotle, um, which, you know, they're not, they're not sufficient to answer the question, but they, they set out the, the fundamental terms in which it's going to be discussed. And that's then where this new volume takes over. That is really helpful. And, um, yeah, so, so certainly a better place to start than that rascal um, John Locke, who's very, very problematic in 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 some ways, yeah. obviously. Um, so, okay, well, the, the okay, the moment the word freedom pops up in conversation in a theological conversation, seems to me people's minds often flit right to the kind of well-worn discussions. Uh, that everybody trips into at a pub theology night. You know, um, the usual suspects are predestination and the problem of evil, something something like that. Um, but you suggest uh, in, in the book that there's a kind of a problem with starting this way, um, quoting you here, uh, both problems concern a single aspect of freedom, namely the power to choose between alternatives. Uh, so what are, what are we missing? Are, are we falling into a trap? when we start thinking theologically about freedom with that as our, you know, with those kind of questions as our starting point? I, I think so. I think uh, falling into a trap is not a bad way to put it. It's, it's, um, I, I've been increasingly convinced that the, 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 the key is, is, is your starting point really that the horizon, uh, within which you, you, you pursue this question. And, uh, that, that aspect predestination and the problem of evil, focuses, uh, tends to take for granted a notion of freedom as the capacity to choose. And then there's a debate about what enables that, what limits it, what uh, uh, coerces it, um, and then how it ought to be used and so forth. Um, but <clears throat> if, if, uh, if the very idea that freedom is about, in the first place, uh, the capacity to choose, if that's a problem, then uh, starting the discussion there, you're, you, wh whatever answer you you come up with is going to just reinforce what you know the the, the deeper roots of the problem. So, um, 
I, I, I think that those are not unimportant questions. Uh, in fact, they become crucially important at a certain moment. Um, but it's, it's really crucial not to allow them to set the terms for the discussion. Um, instead, I think you need to go to, you know, as I, the, the, the word I'll keep using here, no doubt, is uh, the ontological roots you know, a genuinely ontological sense of freedom. So freedom that arises from the being of things, that characterizes the being of things, uh, even before it characterizes action and then, you know, the choices that enable action. So um, we want to start with the beginning. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the big, the, the, the big key, you know, to, um, if I may, um, uh, the three fundamental things I think that need that that are missing typically from the various debates and need to be the starting point is we need an ontological sense of freedom. We need to have a sense of freedom that's radically tied to the good, uh, inseparable from the good, and then we need to have a sense of freedom that um, includes uh, an affirmation of the other of of otherness. So everybody, back up 30 seconds, listen to that again, <laughs> rinse, repeat, come back, really important. Um, and actually, that brings us, that's really helpful. It brings us to this stimulating discussion. I was reading this on a plane to Denver, and, um, and I, think it, I think I didn't quite fist pump during my reading, but I got awfully close. I got close enough that people sitting around me were wondering what I was doing. And there's this really stimulating discussion of, of Christianity's relationship to Greek thought on the one hand and Judaism on uh, Jewish thought on the other. And the point of this really exciting section is this, I think, and I'm quoting you again. Christianity is a genuinely novel synthesis, that's, that's your line, that can't be reduced uh, to the Greek or to the Jewish, but actually transforms both. Um, so I think the question is uh, here, uh, how do you understand the synthesis of Hellenic, Greek, and Hebraic or Jewish thought in Christianity? And uh, how do you see that synthesis setting the stage for what you actually call, and this is great, Christianity's gift to the world, uh, namely the gift of freedom? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the notion of gift actually um, captures both sides of that. So I, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll try to avoid a really long answer to this question. Um, uh, uh, just, just to begin with the, the, the basic point. Um, and I would, I develop it, um, uh, a little further now. Um, uh, it's, I think it's really crucial to understand Christianity, first of all, as, as introducing something new into the world. So I think that's, that's, generally accepted that's generally recognized um the the key is though to see that christianity uh the 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 novelty is in 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 a fundamental way recapitulative it it gathers up what was given and and transforms it and, and um you know and i mean here here's the thing that's amazing is that that turns out to be the essence of freedom <laughs> so christianity i i it's it's increasingly clear to me that christianity in a way is freedom it's sort of a perfect expression of freedom if it's understood if it's understood in in in, in this way now um the the greek dimension is uh is is this ontological sense and the connection with goodness um uh, uh, that that's a, a fundamental theme. Goodness is an ordering principle. You know, Plato is 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 um, you know the 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 paradigm of that. But it's it's it runs through Greek thought um, uh, beyond just Plato. Uh, and and in the Hebraic thought in the Old Testament, we see that that the the very meaning of history and of the of the people of Israel is this. Um, uh, sort of covenantal relationship, this relationship um, between Israel and God as as a relationship between persons. That you know, so so you have this um, reciprocity of wills and reciprocity of persons on the one hand, and this radical de uh, determination and ordering by the good on the other. And uh, I, it seems to me that that a good notion of freedom has to do justice to both sides of that both dimensions um if you emphasize just the reciprocity of will you tend to go uh into what uh philosophers call um 
a libertarian notion of freedom by which they mean not libertarian in the political sense, but in the philosophical sense, which is freedom is pure will, pure self-determination, pure choice on the one hand. And then if, if you emphasize, if you lose that personal interaction of wills dimension and, and just talk about the determination by the good, you tend to, um, fall into determinism, which is sort of the opposite of libertarianism in the philosophical debates. Um, and both of those just represent poles, it seems to me, of, a, of, a, of an adequate view of, of, of freedom. And uh, that adequate view, again, is, is um, I think, lies at the heart of Christianity as, as synthesizing these, these traditions. I would, I would add now the Romans to the Greeks, Romans, and Jews. Um, uh, but that that doesn't play such a significant role, the Roman dimension in in, in this volume, because um, uh, I was looking more specifically at the anthropological and metaphysical roots. Well, that's a tantalizing comment, but I'm not going to get off on it right now. It does it does though bring bring my mind to the covenant. Uh, excuse me, the category of covenant. There we go. Right. Uh, which is really important uh, in your book. So. Uh, this is going to be kind of be a long, drawn-out question. Let me see if I can sum it up. Uh, how does the category of covenant help us to see, you know, from a maybe a more obviously biblical vantage point, the the significance of um, of this this distinction, which is so important, and maybe we should kind of unfold this a little bit for listeners uh, between act and potency. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. That 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 is sort of a pivotal. Um, a couplet that runs through the, and will run through the third volume too, but it's decisive in, in these first two volumes. That, that it's, it's a couplet that's drawn from Aristotle's philosophy. And a classical notion is that um, act is prior to potency. What that basically means is that, or at least one aspect of what that means, it means many things. Uh, but one aspect is that, um, uh, that we ought to think of potentiality and possibility always with reference to what's actual, what's real. So things, real things that have real natures have certain capacities and abilities that they, they can develop, but these are the fruits of their reality, what they actually are. And those capacities are ordered to, to the perfection of what things are. And actuality has to do with the given reality of things and with their perfection, according to the classical tradition. And potency is sort of a bridge bridge between those. It sort of uh, allows for development. Now, what happens in the in the modern world um, and John Locke, uh, he's not the originator of this of this theme, but he's a he's a very good um, uh, sort of a paradigmatic instance of it. Um, uh, potency. Uh, trumps actuality as having a certain primacy. So what, what does that mean? It means um, that uh, possibility, rather than um, um, rooting possibility in given natures, instead one takes possibility as primary and as most important, and that becomes the measure for actuality. So why is, why is that an issue? You... you um, what something might be made into, what it could be turned into, uh, becomes more important than what it actually is or what it's meant to be. And, and, and you see there, I mean, that you're making what actually is um, subordinate to the unreality, unreal potential, unreal possibilities. And that's, there's a, there's a kind of, um, you know, regardless of one's intentions, a kind of contempt for reality that's built into that. So, so to to to, uh, I don't know if you'd like me to connect this with a covenant theme. Um, maybe you wanted to draw that out, but I'd be happy to to sort of draw a connection myself. Well, yeah, maybe I could just I would just like to say parenthetically, you know, so if anybody's listening and they're thinking, "Gosh, it's very philosophical," well, folks, yes, it is, but also, um, I mean, it's really important to underline that you know that, um, I mean. This has this does have lived consequences, right? So, for example, the way in which the way in which we think about money, I've really appreciated what the New Polity guys have done uh, lately yeah. on, on on money. It's been so helpful to say, look, it takes determine you know determinate things, real relationships with neighbors, mutual benefit, and so on, renders them indeterminate, long term, uncertain by you know in the form of 
money, you know. Um, and that seems to me to be a very, um, and maybe that's kind of a, a crude example, but a no, way that's of- a good one. Yeah, there, there are others too. I mean, just think about, you know, think about uh, parents who have children and, and you know, um, what do you think of your children when you think about who, who you would like them to be? Um, do you begin with who they actually are? Think about um, who they might grow into as the fruit of who they actually are. You sort of begin with their reality and affirm the reality as a gift. And then think of that gift as growing and developing as opposed to um, having an ideal conception of what you would like to have as children um, that are different from the ones you have. And you take you take that ideal as being the most important thing, and then and 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 then you look at your own children, and you're disappointed, you're you're frustrated. Uh, you see that you've you've reversed <laughs> the order of things. Um, one ought to think about the possibilities of who they might be on the basis of who they are, rather than judging who they are on the basis of an abstract idea of what they might be. I mean, there there are thousands of examples like this, but that's that's sort of a key. Gosh, yeah, that's really helpful. We could go on. We could go on for ages. But could you bring it back to the covenant point for us? Yeah. So, so the covenant. I mean, this is. Um, uh, there's a. Uh, it's really important that we draw a clear distinction between a covenant and a contract. And we think of contract as something that um, is generated simply by the free choice of individuals. We enter into a contract. We specify the conditions prior to entering into it, and it's. And to the extent that we enter into it, we do so simply through an act of our own will, because we have chosen to accept these these consequences and so forth. And so the the, the self-determination of the will becomes the principal um, uh, determinant in that case. A covenant um, is if you, you know, there's some people that think of contract uh, covenants in terms of contracts, but the biblical notion, especially if you study um, uh, um, in depth. Uh, the 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 Old Testament. Scott Hahn is a is an excellent guide in, in the notion of covenant in the, in the Old Testament. I mean, you see that that um, uh, uh, you you begin already in a covenant. Um, you're born into a covenant, and and when uh, uh, when new covenants are made, that becomes an extension of a relationship that's always there, always already there. Even even God's creation of the world was, in a certain sense. Um, uh, uh, already a covenantal relationship, um, and so so um, the key there is that you you begin inside of a bond, you begin connected to reality, and uh, your activity is um, ordered to the the making fruitful, the rendering fruitful of that relationship that's already given, you know, as opposed to uh, conceiving of relationships as something entirely determined by your will. Wow. Wow. That is so, that is such an important point. Um, I, I wonder, uh, I, I, we have so much to get through. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a really wide ranging book. It's also just, pre, it's pretty darn thick. I've wondered about how we want to kind of tackle yeah. it. I thought it's, it's, it's divided into parts. So I thought, um, you know, maybe we can take each part kind of in, 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 in chunks so we can get right into the, to the next part really, which is late, Late antiquity. Um, so, in this second section, you explore these two key figures: the third-century Neoplatonist philosopher Plotinus, and the uh, fourth-century uh, Christian bishop theologian Augustine of Hippo. Let's start with um, Plotinus. Plotinus is a, a key player in the book. He's, of course, a massively important figure. Uh, all kinds of pluses, uh, positively. You know, he gives, as you say, crystal clear expression to the Greeks' most essential insight into freedom, uh, namely that in free activity, what's received in the soul is only possessed as something that proceeds from it. Maybe we could return to that. He, he also, you say, manages to transcend Greek philosophy, uh, resolving Plato's Euthyphro dilemma, um, uh, quoting, you hear, the good is what it wills to be, and it wills to be what it is. Um, both super awesome accomplishments for a pagan philosopher, but then there are problems. For example, um, how despite his wonderful affirmation that there's desire in God, which anticipates later Christian theologians, Plotinus can't really root that desire in God uh, because all, you know, 
maybe maybe folks don't know anything about Plotinus, but basically for him, all, all relationality kind of breaks down at the top of his ontological food chain in, in what he calls the one. Um, uh, can, can you unpack Plotinus's kind of significance for us more, more simply, kind of where he provides fertile soil for for classical Christian thought, and, and, and but also where he presents problems that then need solving? Sure. I, and you, you've, you've said a lot of it already there. I um, uh, Going into this, Plotinus was always one of my favorites. I always had a great admiration for Plotinus. But I have to say, working on this project, I I am just a, a astounded by him. Um, uh, that's one of my favorite parts of this of this project was uh, was the work on Plotinus. It was, it was surprising to me. Um, uh, on the one hand, um, I think he's uh, Hunters from Balthazar talks about him as kind of summing up the pagan world, gathering it together and and preparing it to be handed over to Christ. He's got a very beautiful image. And there's a, an amazing truth about that. He was he he was uh, an enormously well read uh, philosopher was aware of all of the basic philosophical ideas, uh, sort of on offer at the time, and he found a place for all of them. Um, uh, he he was able to order them in relation to the deepest first principle, which he got from Plato, which is the good. And so, in that sense, I mean, he he represents really kind of this extraordinary recapitulation of pagan thought in a way that 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 just prepares it for Christianity. I, there's there's just no, no one you can quite compare to, to him on that score. Now, um, what what is amazing about him is he's he's the the one who thought through. I mentioned the importance of uh, integrating the good um, in our notion of freedom. He he does that better than anyone in history. I mean that that in a certain sense was the 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 point of this uh, treatise, um, the Ennead six eight. Uh, on the free will of the one. That's sort of the point of that. And, and it's, it's done with a kind of depth and subtlety that's, that's, that's really uh, unparalleled. Um, the, the inadequacy, as you alluded uh, to, is that um, even though you see that he wants to affirm something like relationality in God, he's, he gets as close to it as one can get, I think, in this treatise, so much so that some people think that he must have been influenced by Christianity. That's one of the scholars' debates: is whether he he knew something of Christianity, because uh, some some things he says it's hard to imagine where else he would have discovered them. But in, in the end, he says that if we do talk about anything like relationality, it's 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 a false um, uh, metaphor. Uh, in the end, the one has to be absolutely without relation, and so forth. So it all it all sort of breaks down at the end. Um, but that that opens up a nice place for the Christians to come in and to say, you know, precisely what Plotinus was looking for, we have found, we have been, we have been given in the revelation of, of Christ. And I, I think that's what Augustine does. Um, uh, yeah, well, I was, I was actually just, I mean, so Plotinus, he, he, okay, he leaves us with a relationality problem, you know, he affirms a, a, a God who desires uh, of a God with with eros, as you say, but but he can't actually give us a you know a theological basis because this the one is, you know, undifferentiated, non-relational, so on. But uh, but as you say, then enter Augustine. Um, so Augustine, he he you know he knows he knows of Plotinus. You know, I mean, in the sense that he's read him, um, and he, he follows Plotinus into this daring exploration of the inner life of God. Um, but uh, he takes you know what was only. Uh, well, this is my language. Maybe this is incorrect, but I, I, I kind of imagine, you know, Plotinus has got a glimmer in his eye, and it's a brilliant glimmer, but, you know, um, with Augustine, it kind of hatches into a supernova, to mix metaphors uh, wildly. And, um, this, and, and the supernova is this sense of the self as relationality to the very core. Um, so um, how does, you know, how does Augustine advance our understanding of freedom? How does, how does he move right. us along? Um, and even and even advance on you know the the great thinking that had been been done by Plotinus. Yeah, well, he's he's very much in the Neoplatonic stream that he um, you know it's one of the things people think of Neoplatonism as dualistic, but uh, Augustine uh, shows us that it was precisely his discovery of Neoplatonism that cured him of dualism uh, with the the Manichees. But uh, but what but that. St- was still in need of a further transformation, and that was in in the notion of God as incarnate and trinitarian, and those are the two things that you don't have in Plotinus. 
Um, and, you know, pretty much everything uh, changes, turns on that. So, so what, what, what he introduces is a Trinitarian notion of God and, and, and also is able to incorporate the, the Jewish tradition, uh, Hebraic thought, this, this, this sense of um, love as not simply desire for the good, but as affirming of the person of the other, you know, the, 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 the sort of pers personal aspect of love, um, which you don't get in, in Plotinus. Uh, so so um, there's, there's really quite an extraordinary convergence of, of uh, streams in, in, in Augustine. And uh, I think that, you know, one can one can read his um, uh, his 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 deep insight into the transformation uh, of the soul in, through grace as uh, as a kind of a resolution of this uh, question of the nature of freedom um, as both a gift uh, from God, but a gift as genuine goodness um, that uh, uh, makes um uh, yeah that liberates one from sin and enables one to choose the good and so forth huh and so so augustine he you know he takes this up he transforms it but you you point out you know in the the story that you uh you kind of narrate here that there's st there's still an ambiguity in augustine right um to to do with the kind of with the goodness of created things as objects of human choice can can you explain yeah. that ambiguity yeah, so so uh, with with Augustine, it's kind of interesting. In the end, um, he incorporates this drama of choice as essential to freedom um, uh, that you don't have in Plotinus. He integrates that, but for him, the basic choice, uh, the the only real one that he deals with uh, extensively, um, is the choice for or against God, and. Uh, that that leaves ambiguous this question about what what about the freedom of our choices for things that that are not in any immediately obvious way concerned with God, um, sort of the normal exercise of freedom that and the choice of of, of created goods, um, and that that's ambig ambiguous. In the end, it it almost seems as if for uh, for Augustine, uh, any choice other than the choice of God is not a, a, a genuinely free choice. And you know, the, 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 I, I want to say there's something profoundly true about that, um, but that's but more needs to be said, <laughs> and one one needs to be able to integrate more the um, human experience of, of of choice and so forth, and that that brings us to right, I guess the patristics. Um, yeah, yeah. There's um, I, that will just tuck in that. Um, I mean, I, I love the old school Anglican collects. I'm a, I'm an I'm an advocate for them, um, but I know Andrew Davison is, has pointed out that, you know, one of the, one of the older Anglican colleagues, which again is really dear to me, um, you, you know, it says, it, it talks, it speaks of us in very Augustinian language, loving God above all things. He says, well, there's, you know, there's an ambiguity there because we love him, yes, above all things, but also in and through all things. And yeah. it's a, a good kind of possibly example of, uh, of that ambiguity in practice. But then as you say, right, it leads us into this kind of this new period, the patristic age, um, in which you deal brilliantly with these two figures, Dionysius, the uh, 6th century monk, and then the 7th century Byzantine theologian Maximus the Confessor. So Dionysius appears first. And it's so fascinating. He extends the insights of both Plotinus and Augustine in really profound ways. He bears this uh, special place in your account. So on page 117, you write very strongly, the impoverished concept of freedom that defines modernity can be described as a result of the oblivion of the vision that Dionysius represents perhaps more vividly than anyone else. So my question is, what's, what's Dionysius' yeah. vision? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he's, he, he is um, uh, an extraordinary mystery. First of all, as your listeners may know, I, no one knows who he is. He's um, uh, uh, he adopted the name Dionysius from from Acts seventeen, um, but uh, uh, clearly, and for for a long time, in fact, um, uh, until the nineteenth century, um, uh, he was taken at his word. It was only in modern scholarship that we've discovered it couldn't have been him. So it was a it was a name that he adopted. Uh, we know almost nothing about him, and he's he's generally absent from any discussion of. Freedom, any sort of uh, uh, genealogy of freedom or, or uh, intellectual histories of, the, of of freedom, he doesn't appear. And 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 um, 
in, in one respect, that's there's uh, you know he rarely uses the term himself. I mean, there there's some good reasons for it, but but I find um, that that statement that you read there that that sounds so strong. I, I uh, he, he the reason he figures centrally in my uh, study here is that uh, it has to do with what I mentioned in the beginning, which is that. Um, this sense of the ontological dimension of freedom and the connection to the good is so crucially important and and typically absent from our discussions. And there's there's no one that that presents that uh, as as fully as Dionysius. So what do I mean um, to put it in kind of simple language? Um, his sense of uh, a free act as this spontaneous this being moved by good, being so inspired by goodness and beauty that one can't help but pour oneself out in this kind of ecstatic um, affirmation that that that's that's the uh, that just glows on every page of Dionysius the sense of the ecstatic generosity of God's absolute goodness as a paradigm of what uh, of what freedom means so and it seems to me that that we tend to just have have eclipsed altogether in the modern debates uh, about freedom and that's that's why i think uh dionysius is so important to 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 recover it reminds me of the line in lewis there's somewhere in lewis where he says we've we no longer have height we only have you know uh, uh distance i think he says yeah um, right and uh and, and, and so I see what you mean. You would kind of say, well, that's a loss of the the kind of the depths of being that um, that Dionysius gives us. So so Dionysius, he's so strong on, let's use that phrase, the depths of being. Um, but then, you know, he's kind of he's kind of weak in another area, which is history. That's right. Um, that's right. So, so what winds up happening is that the open endedness, the messiness of choice kind of gets muted. But now Maximus, you know, enters into your yeah. account. And Maximus kind of moves us from transcendent principles to a place where we actually get our boots on the ground in space and time. And in so doing, um, you say Maximus unites these two principles, the historical novelty of free choice and the absoluteness of nature that hitherto have kind of been opposed. So I wonder if it would be utterly perverse to ask you to get into this <laughs> subtle figure on a, on a podcast a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, let me just say the the thing that he introduces. You know, uh, 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 the, the previous thinkers um, looked at freedom from the perspective of God as self outpouring generous goodness who loves us and so forth. Um, for Maximus, it's the incarnate God. It's Jesus Christ in history, and that that shifts the discussion quite quite significantly. You know, some people might say it shifts it outside of philosophy, but I I think that's that's short-sighted. I mean, that would open up a whole discussion about why that's the case. But um, you know, in relation to what we've been discussing so far, as you as you say, he brings in the the uh, historical dimension in time, in history, in the flesh, in the concrete, and uh, uh, he's he's able to uh, incorporate that radical generosity, but not as just a transcendent eternal principle or a principle of creation, but an actual, you know, personal, uh, act actor in history. Um, and that, that just changes everything. And that it, it, it yeah, it really does. And it has crucial consequences, uh, you know, for example, for helping us see what's going on in the garden of Gethsemane. So you point out, you know, people, they sometimes kind of, they hear Jesus praying, you know, let this cup pass for me. And they think, okay, well, he's, you know, he's lapsing into this kind of all too human weakness, but according to Maximus, something else is going on there, right? Oh, yeah. No, this this is so so crucial. That that's that lies at the heart. Uh, that um, episode in uh, the life of Christ lies lies at the heart of his insight into freedom. And and it's a, as you say, it's 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 very subtle and sophisticated. Um, uh, and I, I don't want to to go into too much detail there. I, if I could just try to isolate the basic principle, um, you know, uh, for for Di for Maximus, and this is a key contribution. Uh, the divine will doesn't simply eclipse the human will. So it was uh, crucial for him to recognize that even in Christ, where we have divine and human nature, um, we don't have a single will. Instead. Um, uh, we have to 
as doing fully justice to uh, human nature, which includes a human will, and, and the divine nature includes a divine will. And, and at Gethsemane, where, where Christ says, um, not my will, but yours, um, that might seem like he's overcoming, like his divine will is overcoming his human will. Uh, and the, the problem with that way of looking at it is that it identifies the human will, which in Christ is a perfect human will, uh, it identifies a perfect human will with weakness and suffering and incapacity to to choose what's right, um, which then has to be in a way corrected and 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 uh, uh, um, redeemed by the divine will. For uh, uh, Maximus, it's it's an absolutely brilliant interpretation of that passage. It's that's not it at all. Um, uh, the, for him, the divine and human will always act in perfect tandem so that this, um, the will that does not want to lose his life initially is not the human will of Christ. It's both the divine and the human will of Christ. And that that's not a bad thing to want to affirm the goodness of human life. It's a good thing. And it's a good and natural thing, and nature there gets gets uh, divine sanction by that affirmation. Uh, but even so, it's not the the ultimate, absolute good. And so uh, you affirm it as good and transcendent in the recognition of, of the divine will. And that affirmation of the divine will is not the God's uh, Christ's divine will trumping his human will. It's instead now also. <laughs> the divine and human will choosing the father's the will of the father so it's it's a, it's a really comprehensive and beautiful orchestration of all of these principles all at once man totally I, I i think of this like in the book i mean there's so much drama to the to the way you structure this too because it's like this glorious scene in a movie you know i imagine sort of the theme has now risen to a crescendo um but then we get into the next section you know after maximus and it's like cue the foreboding music <laughs> you know um so in the next section we arrive at this this 11th century uh, theologian of course i mean um uh, both very important figures that you go on to deal with, uh, Anselm of Canterbury being the first, um, who kind of stands in continuity with these earlier figures. You know, like Augustine, there's a deep interiority to Anselm. Like Maximus, you know, he's Anselm sees the the drama of freedom as a uh, not a clash, but a, you know, necessarily, but a choice between two wills. But in other ways, you you say uh, Anselm breaks with previous Christian thought about freedom because. Well, for example, while he echoes Augustine's moral interiority, severs the ontological roots that undergird and nourish Augustine's relational vision of, uh, of freedom. And partly that, that, that break arises out of Anselm's shift from the order of ontology of being to the order of uh, logic. And the upshot there, as you put it, is that the, um, the category of gift is no longer decisive. So I, I apologize for the long on-ramp to the question, but now what, here, here's the simple question. Why is that, that loss of the category of gift so decisive? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, what you get in Anselm is, is, a, is a kind of uh, uh, impoverishing of the tradition. I mean, it's, it's remarkable in contrast to these other authors, um, how little he cites of other sources. For him, it's basically scripture and logic. And 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 you, you see, a, 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 um, not accidentally, a kind of impoverishment in his view of freedom, which tends now to be principally in terms of, of um, uh, power and potency, um, the possibility of choice, you know, the, the, the emphasis on on potentiality, these things that we talked about in the beginning. I came into this research very pro-Anselm. I was not inclined to make any criticisms. This was something that that was very, I did very reluctantly uh, uh, because I, I have such great admiration for him. For him, but on on this score, I realized there's something lacking. And and as you as you put your finger on it, that the 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 category of gift is really crucial. If um, if gift is central, then uh, creation, you recognize the importance of beginning what with what was actually given, the created world that, 
though fallen, uh, is meant to be restored and redeemed and not simply thrown out and replaced. And uh, uh, so, so uh, if it's if it's given as a gift, that 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 implies uh, this, you know, beginning with 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 the ontological roots of freedom. Um, rather than just the uh, choice of what one can, you know, what the changes that one can introduce or, or uh, repairs that one can make. And then on the, on the deeper side uh, of that, uh, gift also implies a kind of a non-competition between wills. So um, uh, when a person receives a gift from a giver, um, there's a there's a positive relationship to uh, a, a another person, uh, a, a thou, uh, a, another will that is not in any way a threat to mine, but in fact is what liberates and enables mine. So so the notion of gift gives us both this kind of ontological dimension and this kind of reciprocity of wills. So when when it when it disappears, we tend to to, to fall into all sorts of dilemmas and and dialectics that we don't need huh so so you move on from Anselm to, to Bernard of Clairvaux this you know the 12th century abbot and you know like Anselm overall Bernard he's on the side of the angels right but but he's but in this but in the story on in this issue of freedom he's he's kind of a troublemaker because with Bernard the you know we get a crack in Anselm and then it's like Bernard I'm exaggerating a little bit obviously but he you know it's like he stuffs a you know a um uh, crowbar in there and kind of widens into a, uh, you know, well and truly into a crack. And it seems that really what's going on is that the crack gets widened by Bernard's kind of freaky emphasis on the indeterminacy of the will. And in fact, you say that for Bernard, the human will is never more like God than when it's indifferent, meaning never more godlike than when it's free to choose among various objects. And that means set over against nature, like set in a way yeah. free from nature. And that this, I mean, astounding claim. You, Bernard therefore throws open the door. You say to to radical secularization. Um, yeah. so how does that cocktail of ideas, freedom as indifference, freedom as clash of wills, and so on? How does it kind of move the needle towards a more secular understanding of freedom? Yeah. So I, you know, it's kind of you might say that that in Bernard, you you start to see the the. Uh, loss of the Greek element altogether. So he's got he's got an ex, you know he he. Uh, as you say, he's on the side of the angels, an extraordinary sense of love and the reciprocity of wills and the paradox of love. Um, uh, when God moves us, you know, it's all God and all me that, that the, this, this profound sense of paradoxical unity in love. But when it comes to cre the created world, things change dramatically. Um, the indifference of the will is this sort of hovering over Creation, rather than being inside of it and and celebrating it, uh, its goodness and being fruitful inside of that, instead it hovers over it with this kind of indifference, and that uh, introduces this idea that the world itself is not um, charged with the goodness of God, as 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 uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins might say, but but instead it becomes this this um, obstacle that one needs to detach from in order to be properly spiritual and in order to achieve a certain kind of holiness. So you, you, you get this, um, uh, this, this darkening of, of the meaning of nature, uh, that, that becomes so important in, in modern philosophy. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a really helpful summary of that section, but it, so from, from that section, then we move on to the high middle. Now, something quite different sort of comes about in the high middle ages because, you know, here um, kind of in the 13th century, we, we get what you call the harvest time of the Christian inheritance. And we meet um, particularly two theologians, Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas. And so uh, for Protestant listeners, maybe, you know, not super familiar with these guys yet, Bonaventure, a, a Franciscan, Thomas, a Dominican. Um, now, Bonaventure, he's such an interesting character, thoroughly Trinitarian, which is like really the key, isn't it, to how Bonaventure takes up the gold in Anselm and Bernard, but yeah. actually reroutes them, uh, sort of put, I, I guess, like crafts that gold then in the service of the, um, in the wider patrimony, mixing metaphors like crazy. So how does this, this kind of regrounding in the tradition on the other side of yeah. these theologians shape Bonaventure's understanding of freedom? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, those two figures, that, that, that's, that's another thing that, that became clear to me working on this project is, you know, there's not like a clear uh, narrative. Um, they're, they're sort of uh, uh, ebbs and, and flows and, and sort of uh, uh, hills and valleys and so forth. The, 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 they, um, uh, it seems to me that, that the, the kind of um, impoverishing of the tradition that you see in Anselm and, and Bernard, uh, they respond to, they're, they, they're, they really are a moment of recovery. And this is true for that, that time period in general, uh, but, but it's, it's becomes just quite apparent in their actual writings on the, on, on the matter. So uh, uh, Bonaventure um, was decisively important in medieval accounts of freedom, uh, even though he didn't write extensively on it. Um, but a, as you say, he's, he attempts to, to uh, uh, retain the affirmations, the insights uh, of Anselm and Bernard, but uh, inside of a, 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 a renewed sense of the created world as good and as manifesting the, the, the goodness of God. But, but for Bonaventure, it's always the Trinitarian God. And so you have that kind of personal uh, reciprocity uh, that is present in the very natures of things in a way that uh, I think is necessary to, to uh, come to a, a, an adequate conception in, 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 in a way that was not so, so clear in the thinkers before him. And then Aquinas, if you want to turn to him, then. Um, yeah, that, that, I mean, that would be wonderful. So I was, it, you know, it struck me that Bonaventure kind of stands out from his more radical heirs in the way that he holds together these apparently kind of competing aspects of truth. And, and Aquinas, you know, similar, similarly maintains this fruitfully complex understanding of freedom that actually yields an ambiguity uh, that, you know, you argue is immensely uh, important for Christians to recover today. Um, but And it's an ambiguity of which later medieval theologians lost sight. Um, obviously, we could have a whole conversation about this alone, but can you kind of um, get us a little bit into Aquinas's yeah, I, I you know that that's the longest chapter in the book, and it's a very complex discussion. But in a nutshell, um, Aquinas has you know probably the richest metaphysics of creation in the whole tradition, and that's really uh, uh, you know at least one of his great contributions to the to the Christian tradition. And and I, I argue in the book that this, uh, and I'm not alone in, in making this argument, but this opens up. Um, uh, the 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 uh, a way to interpret freedom in in really an extraordinary way and and uh, uh, allows one to hold all of the paradoxes that have been uh, crucial in in you know that have become apparently uh, crucial in a, a good understanding. He's got sort of place for it all with his understanding of being. The argument though is that uh, uh, though that's the case, and uh, one one gets a, a sense of his very. Um, sophisticated and complex and symphonic sense of the human will and the, the human act of freedom and so forth. It seems to me that there, there's a, there's a dimension that, that um, there's sort of untapped resources in his metaphysics of creation that could have taken that even further. And that, 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 that opens up then uh, the uh, um, a certain kind of, in the end, um, uh, Many people have made this 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 argument. Um, there's a kind of intellectualism. This uh, um, this question of of whether, in fact, he does full justice to the spontaneity of the of the will. I think there's some legitimate concerns. Um, I think you know he can go a long way in answering some of those, but there are legitimate concerns that get raised. Yeah. Well, so that's I mean that's very interesting. And, and in some ways, again, again, it's not a it's not a simple, tidy narrative. That obviously, that you. Um, you know that that you develop here, but um, but I think it is significant in how we move on next to this sort of these two fateful figures, right? Of Godfrey, Godfrey of Fontaine and uh, John Duns Scotus, um, very much cue the scary music. <laughs> uh, each you know each each of those guys, Godfrey and Scotus, you know they represent a um, kind of a fragmenting of the theological account of freedom um, that affirms, in some sense, real truths espoused by the earlier figures, but, you know, in their selectivity, what they present aren't actually whole truths. Um, so, uh, you know, I could break these these two questions up so we could look separately at, at Godfrey and um, and Scotus, but, but maybe we can kind of um, squash yeah. them together here, just in interest of time, so you can sure. kind of bring us, take us into the drama. Yeah, I mean Basically, the the uh, uh, you see kind of a split 
a hardening of two of two of the sort of polar dimensions of what I think would be a, a, a good uh, holistic, comprehensive vision of freedom. It sort of falls into two parts that are opposed to each other. In Godfrey, you have perfection of the determinism of the good, which is crucial but not adequate alone. And then in Scotus, you have uh, the spontaneity of the will and self-determin- self-determination, sort of a non-determinism. Uh, that uh, uh, that he you know makes pivotal and and those are are sort of perfect opposites and they represent in a way the the uh, coming apart of this original synthesis of the Greeks and the Jews if you will in the Christian tradition uh, that then sets up the modern project in a way that as you say is very is quite fateful yeah I am picking up what you are lying down so i i wonder i just i'm, I'm i am watching the clock maybe i think we need to wrap up and um, i'd love to ask kind of a so what question so if i followed ultimately i think the reason we need to retrieve freedom in the classical sense of which you speak is um well it's you know it's the whole truth and um and only telling the whole truth about god and ourselves guards us from the devastation of telling half truths which are of course also half lies um and in other words the only way to you know, the only way to truly grasp Christianity's gift to the world, freedom, is by receiving the whole Christian tradition, the, the Greek and the Jewish, which have now become one new man in Christ, you know, Ephesians 2, and by receiving them specifically as a gift to which we're entitled as heirs of a, of a spiritual family. This is, the, this is the wonderful light you set off in my head at the start of the episode. Um, really beautiful mark of the book, uh, that. Um, so, so here's the question. We've, we've, you know, we've been talking in kind of highfalutin terms, you know, the, of the contemplative life. But for listeners in the pew, uh, hopefully they've enjoyed this conversation. But, you know, they're living the act of life, um, contem- contemplation, this kind of conversation, you know, serves that end for them. I think the question I'd like to kind of end on is, um, Dr. Schindler, what uh, dispositions, what virtues, what qualities, um, you know, ought to characterize a person who's living out Christianity's gift to the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, probably the very first one is gratitude um, and uh, a, a kind of a, a, a grateful recognition of what we are given and what we actually are and the tradition that precedes us. And to think of ourselves as in the very first place, belonging to this tradition and, and be, uh, having a, uh, a given established uh, bond, uh, covenant bond, with uh, um, the this this gift of nature and grace, this gift of the created world and the gift of God's gift of Himself in the context of the gift of the created world, and for the sake of a greater union with Himself. I mean, to recognize that as the as the context in which we think of ourselves we make our decisions we we respond to others and we build a life um it's it's always within a given context that that has to be received gratefully i think that's really one of the key points here uh, i'm i'm so glad you said that because it's just given me another opportunity to tell people go and read thomas Traherne. you can you can do worse for looking to cultivate uh, the the virtue of gratitude than going in and reading the seventeenth century England's um, um, best take on on Bonaventure. Okay, well, um, uh, Dr. Schindler, thank you so much. I've this is I as probably has been apparent to listeners, been an absolute blast for me. Um, what a privilege uh, to to have you on. Thanks so much for for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, and thanks for reading the book. I've, I've uh, enjoyed discussing it with you. <laughs> well, I've, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, if uh, Friends, listeners, if this has been uh, an enjoyable conversation for you, uh, uh, p- particularly uh, friends uh, in the ministry, learned lay leaders, uh, you, you lot, uh, do get a copy. hope you'll get some time with this book, Retrieving Freedom. The Christian Appropriation of Classical Tradition, fresh out, I think just last month, from the University of Notre Dame Press. 
Uh, in weeks ahead, I'll be chatting uh, lots of exciting conversations coming up. Teresa Morgan at uh, Yale on the New Testament and the Theology of Trust, recently out with Oxford University Press. Michael Lamb at Wake Forest about his new book, A Commonwealth of Hope, Augustine's Political Thought. Many others uh, to come, lots to look forward to. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening. Get Dr. Schindler's book and um, don't tell half-truths and be grateful. Until next time, I'm Sam Forniker, and you've been listening to the Ridley Institute Podcast. <laughs>